You are listening to Let's Be Honest with your host, Just Jonda. Welcome to episode 12 of Just Jonda's LBD. That's your legal breakdown, which is one of our series here on the Let's Be Honest with Just Jonda podcast. And part of what we are doing with the legal breakdown, at least looks like for about the next four or five weeks is going to be spending a lot of time talking about the R. Kelly trial. If you listen to my first episode regarding the R. Kelly trial, then you know that this trial is not televised the way that some of the other recent high profile trials have been. And folks were probably expecting to see to see the trial or at least hear more about it. So that is part of what would account for why you are not hearing about it on constant loop the way that some of these other high profile trials in recent years have gone because they're just they're not televised. The feds do not typically do that in this case is in federal court. There's some other issues that I have some concerns with as to why this is not being talked about more, particularly uh, on Black radio, but we can get into that at another time, especially as it relates to the alleged victims here being uh, Black women and girls. So we are going to get cracking on the first five days of trial. If you did not hear my initial part one on this, then go back and listen to it because I gave a very thorough breakdown of exactly what R. Kelly is charged with, Robert Kelly is charged with, and why this case is in federal court. And quite frankly, why this case isn't exactly what many have assumed as it relates to him just being charged flat out with counts of sexual assault and um, and rape and all of these things because we've heard about those things constantly. And just so that you know, he is charged in that manner in other places. He is charged in that manner in Chicago, which, well, Cook County, which at last count, I believe is maybe about 11 charges. Well, no, they just added another 11. So I think he may be up to like 21 charges of sexual battery, sexual assault type uh, events. And then he is also charged with charges of that nature in Minneapolis. Here in New York, he is being charged with racketeering. He's basically being charged under the RICO statute and eight counts under the Mann Act. And as we go through what's happened in the first five days, 
Uh, I'll give you just a little mini recap of what those are. But again, if you go back and listen to my first episode that I did last week on this, that will give you more than enough. And I also explain a bit more about uh, the charges in Chicago and Minneapolis as well. So there has been a lot of activity in this case. The federal prosecution has come out swinging, although there have been quite a few moments that I was not terribly impressed with the defense in fairness to to my defense bar brethren i think that part of that is because his defense team is a bit disjointed he his defense team first of all was in large part dismissed quit fired not paid whatever i'm sure there's a laundry list of explanations as recently as June, and yes, I'm talking June 2021, and on for a case that had federal charges pending in August, and the judge turned down attempts at continuing the case based on attorneys saying that they didn't have enough time to prepare. I don't think that that's appealable error. I think that the judge uh, was correct in that. He's had more than two years to get this together. Even though he was held in Chicago for the vast majority of the time, most these attorneys are not all from one place. So it's not like he couldn't get to them. If you can hire four attorneys, then you certainly can make sure that they get to wherever they need to be in order to meet with you and prepare the case. Um, Robert Kelly has been in New York physically since June. And I agree that under normal circumstances, I would never think that between June and August was enough time to prepare. But this case was not new to Robert Kelly, just to his defense team. And whatever shenanigans he may have had going on with the defense team, that certainly should not interfere with the proper functioning of the court and moving forward with trial, especially given that these that given that this situation has been pending for two years, even some of the additional counts that were alleged, um, and essentially they all they did was just add three more counts to the Man Act charges uh, to the five that I talked about last week. Those were added over a year ago. So these this none of this was new to his defense, just perhaps to this new defense team. And I think that uh, some of what's going on uh, could be just that they're a bit disjointed. They're not all from the same firm. It doesn't even appear that they all work together uh, on a regular basis, if ever. Two of them have never even been in federal court. One of them is a former bankruptcy attorney and based on his bio, it's not terribly clear if he has as much 
criminal court experience as some of the others. It appears that he does have some having been in a prosecutor's office at one time. You can't be in a prosecutor's office if you don't have at least some criminal experience. But again, it seems like his defense team is from is coming from several different directions, four different firms. It's several, uh, at least two of them sole practitioners. And one of them, the uh, female attorney, and she's one of the lead attorneys on his side of the case coming from, uh, where is she from? I believe she is from a Chicago area firm. So, which would make sense because he's going to have charges there as well. So what I'm going to get started doing here is I'm going to go over who the players are in this, because if you know who the players are, then what has happened within the last five days is going to make a whole lot of sense because we're not going to be here for hours and hours. It's not necessary. Some of the testimony, particularly of the two victims who have testified thus far, uh, Geronda Pace and the second one that has been that was on the stand yesterday and today identified only as Jane because there's going to be five Jane Doe's here. Um, their testimony does have some similarities, especially when they get into the nuts and bolts of essentially daily life being one of Robert Kelly's girls, for want of a better way of putting it, just saying it is a bit abhorrent. But again, as we get a little bit deeper into this, you'll understand why I refer to the to them that way. His defense attorney probably should not have made that mistake umpteen times before correcting herself. But it, it certainly makes sense why I would do it. Okay, so let's get to the actor. So we know that the judge is Judge Ann Donnelly. Um, she is an experienced federal court attorney. I mean, I'm sorry, federal court judge who was appointed a, a while ago. She was actually appointed by President Obama. Then there are three federal uh, U.S. Uh, three federal prosecutors on this, or assistant U.S. attorneys. So if I say AUSAs or um, just U.S. attorney, you'll know who I'm talking about when I say that I'm talking about the prosecution team. So there's three, they're all women. We have Elizabeth Geddes, Maria Cruz Melendez, and Nadia Shihata. All of them have participated thus far in the case doing some of the uh, some of the arguing thus far, Ms. Geddes argued against his bond when he was denied in 2019. Uh, Maria Melendez delivered the opening arguments back in back. Uh, it seems like a long time ago, right? Hasn't been. She delivered the opening arguments for the prosecution last Wednesday. Um, one of the memorable statements she made, and I, I took this from the Chicago Tribune, but it was definitely, they caught the same one that stood out to me. Um, she did, she said that he began collecting girls and women like they were things, hoarding them like objects. And this is going to come up over and over again. So 
Um, and then the next person, Nadia Shihada, has also uh, participated already. She most notably questioned Mr. Kelly's doctor regarding the herpes diagnosis and whether or not, because that's part of uh, the criminal behavior that's being alleged as one of the underlying acts for Rico that he was knowingly infecting people or at the very least having unprotected sex that could have led to infection of these women by sleeping with them or having various other sex acts with them while having herpes and not telling them in advance. The, what else, uh, let's see, the other characters that are involved. So that's your three prosecutors. So the defense team, as I mentioned, there are four. So the defense team has consisted of two people who have been the main defense, I would say the main talkers <laughs> in all this, the main speakers in all of this who has uh, handled both the opening and quite a bit of the questioning. I will say from a tag team standpoint, they have been pretty good in keeping their messaging consistent. And while it may seem distasteful to some, I think that uh, their messaging has been appropriate and on target given who R. Kelly is and how most of these women came into his life despite their age and some of the allegations of very egregious and downright criminal behavior that of course the we're here to talk about and that the prosecution is seeking to prove ultimately all of these uh girls and women and anyone who was less than 18 when they came into the situation, I'm, I am going to refer to them as girls, although everyone is an adult now, because that sort of keeps into perspective what we're talking about when we deal specifically with the underage victims. All of them came into, <coughs> excuse me, all of them came into R. Kelly's life or R. Kelly came into their lives voluntarily. These were individuals who <clears throat> either came to his concerts or were introduced to him. <coughs> I'm sorry, it's a bit of dust in the room. Excuse me for a moment, folks. I'm going to open the door. I tried to close the door just because of um, <clears throat> because we have puppies that tend to roam in, or rather they do, but uh, the air in here is very dry. So at any rate, what I was gonna what I was saying is all of them came into his life voluntarily. Now, things allegedly took a rather ugly turn, and that's why we're here. But because they came into his life voluntarily and it, because of who he is, no other reason, it's not like any of these people were high school sweethearts of his, it does make sense that, and if you hear a little bit of unwrapping, because, you know, I break the fourth wall and bring you behind the scenes, that is me putting a lozenge in my mouth. 
those people, it, it makes sense that the defense team strategy is to continually mention or try to paint these women via mentioning that they were fans, that they were uh, groupies, that they were in some cases alleged stalkers of his who were happy to be in his presence and live with him, be fed by him, have sex with him, get gifts from him, places to live. Several of them, and we'll hear this later on, but certainly with at least one who already testified, went but in, and testified that she went with promises and hopes of him making her the next Aaliyah. And so there is a bit of an alleged quid pro quo that his defense team is attempting to reinforce. The problem, of course, for the defense and ultimately Mr. Kelly, is that as it relates specifically to the underage girls, which is why I, th I lean more towards um, liking the RICO cases as opposed to the Manac cases, the problem is, is that even if there was some type of quid pro quo on the part of the young ladies in R. Kelly, and that there is legitimate questions or, or that the jury believes that there are legitimate questions about whether or not he tortured them, had them under these rules, constantly videotaped them, and all manner of things beat them um, all manner of things that we'll talk about a little bit when we get into the testimony. Even if the jury has some concerns about whether or not any or all of those events happened, as long as those girls were underage and we can't get away from the fact that they were in his home, and there was some type of activity of some kind because why would they be living there? Nobody's going to believe that they were living there platonically or benevolently and that he was just some uh, foster parent, <laughs> you know, that he really was the Pied Piper of R&B as opposed to the Peed Piper of R&B and somehow was running a home for runaways who just happened to be singers, unless we are to suspend, or the jury, because that's who counts, it, uh, are to, is to suspend their disbelief and make that leap that nothing untoward occurred, then that nothing untoward occurred at all, you are going to have a problem because at the end of the day, if those, if the timeline holds and his team can't get those young ladies out of his bus, 
out of his house, off of his penis, or any of those things until they were 18 years old, he's got a problem. And it doesn't matter if they were groupies. It doesn't matter if they were crazy fans. It doesn't even matter that there are admissions from at least the first two people, uh, Geronda Pace and Jane Doe One, that, or at least one of the Janes, they, I don't think they identified her as, uh, you know, there's five of them. But at any rate, uh, uh, those two thus far have admitted that they lied about their age. Even if they lied about their age, both of them also say that at some point they told him their age and it didn't matter. Also, and just for those who may be under this uh, delusion that the fact that these young ladies lied about their age, that that matters, it doesn't. I can tell you as someone who has dealt with more, it's, I'll call it what people are used to hearing it called, more statutory rape cases than I can count, that whether or not a person lies about their age, it doesn't matter. I, I have a 22-year-old a sound engineer and I have told him for the longest you better you better get ID and you better know how to look at an ID to know whether or not it's legal because it does not matter if someone lied to you about their age that may be something I could use in mitigation as it relates to your sentence but it changes nothing as it relates to the conviction on the front end. That is why it's called statutory because the only thing that matters is the status of the individuals. Was one individual age A, as in over age, uh, above 18 and above, and was the other person under age in whatever that means in your particular state? Obviously being a minor is defined as 17 and below and what degree of um, sexual misconduct that falls under, then it depends on what your state defines as the age of consent. And of course, below a certain age, it doesn't matter. There's just no consent whatsoever, especially when you get into um, the uber minor category when you start going 13 and below. Okay, away from that rabbit hole. Bottom line is, if they can't, as I say to some of my clients for things that are far less serious than what R. Kelly is charged with, unless I can remove you from where the alleged event took place, we are encountering some problems because if there is a bank robbery and you're accused of robbing and, and you're accused of robbing the bank, and I can't at least have a scenario where I remove, where I can remove you from the bank and say that you were not at the bank that day and that time, then we've got work to do because they've already got one up on you because you were in the bank. So now we have to get bogged down into the minutia of what you were doing in the bank as opposed to everybody else. 
and why they're accusing you. And, you know, it gets ugly. And that's where R. Kelly is. We can't get these women out of the house, off the bus or off his penis. That's a problem. And if we can't do that, or if his defense team can't do that and break up this timeline as it relates to age, everything else falls apart no matter what happens with those Man Act cases, which mostly involved someone who's an adult. Okay, all is not lost though, as it relates to, because I'm giving you both sides of this, as it relates to the R. Kelly team. So as I was doing, I was giving you the characters. Um, the first lead attorney on this, Nicole Blank, Nicole Blank Becker, she is the one um, who is from the, it looks like she is from, yes, she is from the Michigan area. Actually, I said Chicago, but she is from the Michigan area. She is the one who repeatedly referred to the witnesses during the opening because she did the opening statement as girls and then corrected herself um, and started calling him, started calling them women. And again, not a great uh, mistake to make, especially given the nature of this case. Now she does, although she's never tried a case in federal court, she does come with sex crime experience. In fact, according to the Chicago Tribune, she was head of the sex crimes unit in Macomb County in Michigan. So she's, she's definitely had some experience in that area. The other lead attorney on this case is Devereaux Koenig. He is um, from the New York area. He also um, handled a few of he, he's handled a few big trials, so I understand why R. Kelly hired him. In fact, he handled the Takashi 69 trial. Now, Takashi 69 ended up getting 24 months, but I don't necessarily um, think that that was a bad deal in terms of Koenig knowing what he was doing because Takashi 69 was uh, this is another uh, alleged rapper, and this was a what three years ago, I guess. Um, he was charged with some pretty serious cases and according to everybody, basically dropped a dime on his co-defendants. And so that's why he got 24 months. So as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Koenig certainly did his job. He made a good deal for his client considering what he was charged with. He is another attorney though, who came on this, onto this case in June and once again was very concerned about, uh, he was very concerned about the fact that he may not have enough time or, or that the defense didn't have enough time. Again, I'm going with Judge Ann Donnelly on this, not her problem, not the court's problem rather. So he's no stranger to high profile cases. And uh, Mr. Koenig is again, been around for a while. He is he has been one of the main people questioning individuals, specifically, um, uh, specifically the uh, uh, Geronda Pace. In fact, he was the one that kept accusing her. Um, oh, I'm sorry, he wasn't the one. I take that back. He didn't represent Takashi. 
he represented the person who was accused of uh, accused of kidnapping Takashi. His attorney, his client got 24 years. But again, when your client uh, is accused of kidnapping somebody and the kidnapping is videotaped, can't really hold that against the attorney. And in, <laughs> he also was an assistant DA in the Bronx County. So not a, not a stranger to court, probably not a stranger to federal court. I've seen him. He looks a little bit older. So he's been around for a while in and around New York area. He even went to he even went to law school in New York. So experienced attorney just, you know, thrown in the case at the last minute. Another um, another attorney on the case. And this is allegedly the lead attorney, Thomas uh, Farinella. And he's never tried a federal criminal case. Not really sure why he's listed as the lead attorney. And uh, he's had a bit of a checkered legal past, but, you know, things happen. God bless him. All right. So witnesses who have testified so far, you've heard me mention a number of times, Jeronda Pace, his doctor, R. Kelly's doctor testified as well. That's going to come into play um, with it. It kind of bolsters the testimony of Jeronda Pace, which I'll talk about in a moment. Anthony Navarro, who was a former assistant roadie of R. Kelly and Demetrius Smith, who was his former tour manager, his testimony is pretty darn devastating. And of course, the woman referred to as Jane, who is also one of the women, one of the two women, and we know this for sure based on her testimony, who was in that infamous interview with Gail King. Remember, right around the time of the arrest after the surviving R. Kelly documentaries. R. Kelly did an interview with television personality, newswoman, Gail King. And then I guess maybe a day or two later, two of the young women, the remaining two who was who were still living with him, did a rather strange and bizarre interview with Gail King as well. That uh, it was one of the person who was identified as Jane because, of course, with Rape Shield, if they choose not to be identified, they don't have to be, and, and um, the press can't identify them either. We know, based on her testimony, that she was one of those two women, and we'll get into that. So, for the purposes of this, we're going to talk about the fact that she was charged, that we're going to talk about the charge. What the court is focusing on primarily now, or I'm sorry, what the prosecution, but the court has focused too, what the prosecution is focused primarily on now are the RICO charges. And we know that because of the individuals that they have testifying. Under RICO, the, the main, the meat of RICO is that you have to establish that there was a criminal enterprise. And in this case, R. Kelly is considered the head, or at least the figurehead of this criminal enterprise, that there was a criminal enterprise whose purpose was to commit these illegal and immoral acts. And in this case, 
the allegation is that the purpose of the criminal enterprise, and again, you go and listen to my first episode on this, I'll break it down a, a lot more than what I'm going to do today. The purpose of this enterprise, and this is directly from the indictment, was to promote R. Kelly's music and his brand to recruit women and girls to engage in illegal sexual activity with him. And by continuing to promote the music and the brand, the members of the enterprise expected to receive opportunities, personal benefits, um, power status within the enterprise, etc. So again, I'm going to break this down because it gets a little hairy. And this is actually where I think the defense can score some points um as well even the person who helped to write the who helped to write the rico statute felt like um they should have made things uh they should have made it a bit tighter but again as i said last week they may do that as they're trying the case and because the indictment is only going to tell but so much of the story at any rate in order to prove the the criminal enterprise, you need to show that not only were there individuals, members of this criminal enterprise, in R. Kelly's case, that would be the roadies, his manager, like the tour manager who testified and in several more individuals to come, that there were these people who were responsible for helping to carry out these illegal acts, whether it's the bribing of the official, which the tour manager did admit on the stand to do, whether it is to carry out his orders as it relates to um, holding the women hostage, or um, whether it was to facilitate sexual activity with R. Kelly, you know, procuring the girls, maintaining them, keeping them from leaving so that he could use them at his will. And in some cases, per one young woman's testimony, I believe it was Jane's testimony, actually allowing them to have sex with them themselves, that all of these things were done with the, uh, with the express intent of making sure that what the criminal enterprise was meant to accomplish had uh, happened. Now, a key to RICO, and this is where I think the defense has the best shot of scoring some points, is that you have to bring in the actions around him, the actions of the people around him. It's not just what R. Kelly allegedly did. In the cases that are being tried in state court in Chicago and or, um, well, Cook County, but it's going to be Chicago, in Chicago and later in Minneapolis, in those cases, the specific actions, the specific intent of Robert Kelly and Robert Kelly alone are the key to those cases. And RICO, because this is about a criminal enterprise, because remember, this this was created initially to use to bring down the mob. Because it, it, it is all about not only establishing that an enterprise existed, but that within that 
enterprise. You can't just say it. You have to show that there were individuals who made up this enterprise carrying out acts. So that makes the actions of those around him key. Now, according to uh, G. Robert Blakey, who is a former Notre Dame law professor, and he also helped to actually create the RICO statute. So it's always good to go back to the framers, right? And he definitely would be a framer. And this is courtesy of the New York Times. This doesn't have to be as sophisticated as a mafia family, okay? You don't have to have your Don and your Capos and your lieutenants and all of that. No, you don't have to have all of that. It can be a bit loose, especially if you, it, and especially when you can show that even when players changed, the activity stayed the same. So just that alone and the fact that over time, you could literally take a person put them in that position and they would still do the same thing. That's evidence of that is enough to say that there was an enterprise. The actors may have changed, but the activity was still the same, which means that the purpose, well, not, it doesn't mean it, but it underscores the, what the purpose of the enterprise was because they're interchangeable. You know, if your purpose of your starting lineup is to win and during the course of a game, you pull players in and out of the game, but ultimately they are still running the plays and making it happen to try to win the game, then the enterprise is still the same. The team, the purpose of the team is still the same. For those of us who grew up in the 80s, well, we could say Menudo. They replaced those guys all the time, and they still came out and sang those same stupid songs. So that, uh, and, and we do, we I think we can arguably say that as the case is made, the prosecution is going to attempt to show that because as you may know from the last episode, all of these events didn't necessarily happen at the same time. Some of these alleged victims probably never met unless they all did press together or the R. Kelly documentary together because they were there at completely different times. And certainly as it relates to the events, um, the events surrounding the Aaliyah situation, some of these women were barely out of diapers, uh, as bizarre as that sounds, but it's the truth because that was, that happened in 1994. And at least one of these women is, you know, what, only like 23, 24 now. So put that into perspective and it gets even more scary and a lot more, well, a lot more gross. Okay, so how did this all start? Opening statements. The prosecution kept their opening statements very textbook, which I like because it makes things less confusing for the jury. They definitely did your traditional roadmap 
opening statements. They broke down what was the the RICO statute because it can be very confusing, especially in this context. They also were sure to explain to the jury that this case isn't about proving beyond a reasonable doubt that every single aspect of some of these events actually occurred because as we will see and as we've discussed repeatedly as it happened um as with the case of Aaliyah it's not so much the fact that he married her yes that looks bad and is a is a nice little nugget to have in the back of the jury's minds in terms of uh Mr. Kelly's shall we say, predilection as it relates to young women, especially given that the first several women you, the first several women you have testified dealt with him when they were young girls, much like the deceased uh, in question, Aaliyah. But that's not what's important. What is important is what needed to occur in order to make the marriage happen, which was to make it appear that Aaliyah was of age because they didn't have the consent of her parents, which was that someone bribed a government official to obtain a fraudulent ID. That is the types of things that we're talking about because again, the issue is establishing the criminal enterprise. Yes, it is important to have individuals up there to talk about what happened to them in what sounds like a house of horrors. If you believe even a half of what the victims say occurred there, they were in a house of hearts. It may have been a fun house for him, but not for everybody else. So again, they it's important to have those women up there, but what's more important is to establish that there were individuals who helped to make that happen. Like ultimately, and we'll talk about the, the person who testified, the roadie, who said, Yes, there were certain things that needed to be maintained when Robert Kelly was out of town. The fact that they needed permission for certain things coming and going and using the phone and all of those types of things, those things still had to be maintained and there were individual and it was understood by the other actors around him that those things needed to be maintained as it related to the victims. And he wasn't always there to do those things personally. So given those conditions, it's important to talk about the conditions, but even more important to talk about the individuals who were involved in helping to both create and maintain those conditions, because that is how you establish the enterprise. Because ultimately, at the end of the case, what the prosecution is going to be asking the jury to do is to look at the big picture of how this individual was able to do the things that he is accused of doing.
Yes, it is important that on some level, well, you know, obviously, it is important that on some level you believe that he did them and that you believed that these women were put into such a state of deprivation and and fear that they would follow along with these rules. That's definitely going to be important, but for the purposes of Rico the broader picture is still even more important than that, which is the network that helped to maintain that for him, both when he was present and when he wasn't. And then of course, obviously you get into all of the recruitment and all of that. The Man Act cases, again, they explain that in a similar way, except you don't necessarily need the enterprise piece for the Man Act cases. Obviously, there is an element of the quote-unquote enterprise or quote enterprise unquote still being involved because the moving of individuals from place to place and some of the allegations that are made against him as it relates to those offenses still require the work of not just him, just based on the nature of what he was doing, being an entertainer, being on tour, traveling, etc. So the prosecution of course, they use lots of inflammatory language, obviously, because you want the conviction. So you want to paint this person as the next most evil thing to Satan. But ultimately, you um, the focus for the prosecution, especially given the fact that they are using Rico in this way and using, and, and some would say in a manner that it wasn't originally intended, and using the Man Act in this way. Now, they're using the Man Act in a manner that it was uh, intended as it relates to, because the Man Act is very simple. It, I mean, well, not simple, but the Man Act is basically co comes down to one thing, whether or not um, women and minors are being transported uh, across, straight, across state lines for illegal or immoral purposes. So the fact that, long story short, it's sex trafficking, is easy to understand. However, most of R. Kelly's, at least five of those eight counts, as it relates to Robert Kelly, I can't keep calling him R. Kelly. I hate to do that because it just sounds so like um, too informal. I mean, he's he's a criminal defendant. Uh, five of those eight counts all relate to one person and. <clears throat> And that person was an adult the entire time. So that is going to be a little bit of a tougher, um, I, I think that's gonna be a little bit tougher for uh, some of the jurors to swallow. Um, I think they were smart to add on the additional three counts, especially as it relates to 
uh, the count, especially as it relates to bringing a young man into it, because let's call a spade a spade is going to inflame the jury and they knew it. So that's where we are. Now, the defense, although they gave a two hour opening or Ms. Becker gave a two hour opening where, again, she kept referring to the witnesses as girls instead of women, which is what you shouldn't do when your client is charged uh, you know, with basically, or is accused of essentially running a criminal enterprise so that among other things, he could be a pedophile. Um, despite arguing, uh, I mean, giving an opening statement for two hours, it all boiled down to pretty much the same thing. It, she took all the charges apart, same way that any defense attorney would, but she still, it all still ultimately came down to the same thing, which was that, as I said earlier, and it's probably the best, one of the best arguments that they can bring, is the fact that none of these women came into Robert Kelly's orbit um, involuntarily. In fact, some of them well, all of them, quite frankly, specifically, at least according to the defense, specifically sought him out, particularly people like Geronda Pace, who went and stood outside of his original trial, uh, the 2008 trial. Um, of course, she was 16 at the time, but stood outside of the 2008 trial until she had an opportunity to meet him, et cetera. And then of course the young women who were um, even the ones who were, who met him initially with, with their family members or parents because they were attempting to get into the business. And of course, as it relates to the ones who were full blown adults, you have, as I discussed earlier, that whole quid pro quo thing. I do a little something for you in hopes that you're going to do a little something for me. And given the fact that we are talking about the culture of show business and like there's pretty much nobody who doesn't understand a little bit about show business or seeing superstars, whether they are movie stars, television stars, sports figures, or musical entertainers, that these individuals attract a certain element who want to be around them purely because of who they are, also known as groupies. And so... However you slice it, especially when dealing with the adult, uh, the adult alleged victims, that's a, that's a tough hump to get over. And I, I understand why, however, as I said earlier, however distasteful it may be, they keep coming back to that because that is one of the best arguments that they have in the face of all of this. So let's do a quick rundown of some of the witnesses, because as I said, some of the things have been repetitive. So the first witness they had was Geronda Pace. Geronda Pace, we've heard from before. She is, and I believe she was in the Surviving R. Kelly documentary. I, and I saw the documentary. I'm 
in fact, yes, she was because she's the one, as I said, who met him after um, being one of the many people. She wasn't the only one by any stretch of the imagination. One of the many people who supported him in the trial back in 2008. Uh, well, he was acquitted in 2008, but the trial as it relates to the young woman in the shower. And she um, talked about how she met him, the fact that she was around 16. She They tried to uh, mess around with her on her birthday, but it, it was ridiculous. Bottom line, she was 16. She met him, I believe, like at the end of April, right around her birthday and, uh, you know, the whole nine yards. So at any rate, um, she, of course began to spend time with him she they she did admit that after they met she was enamored with him i mean she was enamored with him when she went out to support him and she did admit as well that she told him that she was 18 she wanted to be around him of course she told him that she was of age however things turned once things turned sexual she got a, she got a little nervous because she uh, testified that she was a virgin. So at that point, as things progressed, she felt like she needed to tell him the truth. So she did tell him that she was not 18. She said at that point when she told him that she wasn't 18, that he um, just told her, oh, well, I mean, it is what it is. Just make sure that you present as 20, 18 or 21 when we're around people and when we're going places. She said very soon after she began to stay there uh, at the mansion and be there on a regular basis. This was in or around 2010. She said while there, she had to follow what became known as Rob's Rules. And she's not the only one who talked about Rob's Rules, another, um, or Daddy's Rules, because those they usually had to call him um, Daddy or something of that nature. But the even the roadie referred to them as Rob's Rules. And so these rules were usually restrictions about how they could dress, who they could speak with, or in her case, how she should dress, who she should speak with. She would have to wear baggy clothes. Um, she, uh, he, the restrictions about uh, what she could eat, when she could come in and out of the room, and even going to the actual bathrooms. One day she said that her bathroom privileges were, at one point she said, the longest period of time her bathroom privileges were restricted was three days. So she was forced to either go on herself or, well, you can imagine. On cross-examination, his attorney, this was the male attorney Koenig, uh, tried to again reinforce this notion that she was a groupie, that she was stalking him, um, and it was again just trying to really hone this hone in on this notion that was you know the groundwork of course having been laid in the opening statement that R. Kelly was 
essentially a victim of his fame. And in fairness, it's not like he's the first celebrity to complain about that, especially when you look at some of the situations that has occurred, not just with some celebrities, not just from the their fans, but from the media, particularly the way that the paparazzi hounds them in order to be the first to get the story or the picture so that, of course, it can feed this insatiable need that fans seem to have for information and pictures and in some type of access to them. And remember, this also is, we're, we're dealing with a little bit of a different era, especially when we're talking about um, 2010 and some of these cases, 2005, et cetera, where social media was not what it is today in terms of some celebrities being able to strike that balance with their fans by giving a little bit more of themselves via social media and again, feeding that need that uh, this whole fame monster and this celebrity culture seems to have created. So this is pre that where your way of getting to them is to <laughs> try to actually be in their company physically. So um, that is what he tried to, the, that is what they were trying to reinforce. And, and that's been constantly going on that um, this throughout this trial. She also read from a journal that she uh, had at that time or that she allegedly had at that time. I'm assuming that there was um, some type of introduction of that journal. There are certain rules of evidence that have to be followed in terms of uh, entering certain things into uh, the court record, particularly as it relates to journals and cal calendars, to prove in as much as possible that they were, they are a true depiction of what they're supposed to be, like a journal created at that time. Doesn't mean that people don't lie, and it doesn't mean that somebody couldn't have just literally sat up and wrote it, but there is a process that's supposed to be followed. So one of the things where she actually started crying on the stand is she said that um, that Robert called her a silly bitch and slapped her across the face a number of times. In fact, she said that was the last time she saw him at his Chicago home in 2010. And he told her it wasn't going to be an open hand the next time. So she also talked about the fact that um, that he also videotaped sex between them. And that's also a recurring theme, not only with the alleged victims, but even with some of the people that he worked with. With the alleged victims is more so the videotapes because that would obviously be a way of controlling you. I'll release the videos, etc. Whereas with some of his team, once you start doing some of the grimy stuff that it's alleged they did for him, well, that becomes leverage against you as well. Another person who testified right on the heels of Jeronda Pace 
to again establish for the prosecution this other piece of, well, nastiness, if we're going to be a little informal about it, is the part about um, it's, it's the part about the herpes. Um, the, and when I say the herpes, I don't mean to call it the herpes, like the AIDS. I'm saying, uh, the part about him leaving out the herpes diagnosis that according to his doctor goes back as far as, let's see, as far as maybe 2000. Now this is where things get a little funky because it sounds like his doctor was I, I, I don't know like trapper john md as in you know i'm not a real doctor but i play one on tv because this was really weird he had a person he has a personal physician of 25 years this dr chris mcgrath and this is the person who testified now cnn received medical records uh, going back to 2011, which is the earliest mention. Well, they, they received a bunch of medical records, but the earliest mention of any type of STD diagnosis was 2011. However, Chris McGrath testified, and he, he testified on Thursday right after uh, Geronda Pace, uh, that he treated he's been treating r kelly for genital herpes since at least 2007 and he said that he suspected the singer had herpes as early as 2000. now listen to this now this is according to newser based on the symptoms mcgrath said he told kelly to inform your sexual partner so they can make a decision whether or not to have sex with you and that's that's a quote from dr mcgrath he claims he told R. Kelly that in June 2000. Now, Geronda Pace did testify that she developed genital herpes after a few months of having unprotected sex with R. Kelly in 2009. But the interesting thing is that, and this was helpful to the defense, is that there was some evidence that Kelly told her about the STD and even examined her for the disease. According to Geronda Pace, she said that R. Kelly had her examined by a doctor at his home and said the doctor had prescribed medicine. She also testified, and now this is when she testified about being slapped and choked. So there is some messiness around the issue of Geronda Pace in particular. Now it's it's pretty clear from everybody else that he didn't it exactly put out an announcement that he had herpes. How in fact, again, because of the weird shenanigans between him and his doctor, there seems to be some some messiness around who around what who was told what. And when they were and when they were told, at any rate, she, the doctor said that there was a point after two thousand seven that he gave R. Kelly, Robert Kelly, so many 
he gave him he gave him so many prescriptions for herpes that he lost count and he gave him the herpes drug i think it's called valtrex and so the defense <laughs> it was actually kind of funny the defense asked is there anything else that that is prescribed for and he said i know what i he, he basically it was like in this case i prescribed it for and he said it three times herpes herpes and herpes so at some point he did clearly make it that it was made clear that to robert kelly that he did have herpes not clear about what happened in 2000 like did you actually diagnose him or did you just or did you just tell him i think you kind of might sort of maybe have herpes that part is weird maybe that's why you have doctors who are your friends or maybe that's why you shouldn't have doctors who are your friends but certainly by 2007 and well before he started sleeping with at least the first witness on a regular basis. He definitely knew because it sounds like Dr. McGrath was dispensing herpes drugs like candy. He was up in there uh, giving, being like Michael Jackson's former doctor, just handing, just handing it out like it was Tic Tacs. So, um, not that Michael Jackson had herpes, talking about the other drug. So um, what happened next? So you have that. Now, this is where some of the conspiracy or, well, I, I won't toss in another word. We'll stick with enterprise. The next two witnesses really begin to help the prosecution's case as it relates to the enterprise enterprise because these are individuals who were in the inner circle and admitted to criminal activity the first is anthony navarro former assistant slash roadie to r kelly he testified that he was often the person who had to take the women back and forth to the mansion that he was the one who would make sure that they got the things that he needed he would follow the orders that were given he said that he claimed that none of them looked underage we know that that's you know that's neither here nor there but as far as he was concerned he admits that things in the mansion were bizarre uh in his own words that it, it was a very strange atmosphere the types of things that went on he did admit that there were rules that the women had to follow and there were rules that as individuals who worked for robert kelly you had to follow as it relates to the women like he couldn't look he couldn't speak to the women the women couldn't speak to him we know the women weren't allowed to look our kelly in the eye so he definitely sets the stage for this strange atmosphere that went on he didn't go so far as to say that he saw he saw any of the 
physical abuses, uh, not that any type of starvation or deprivation of facilities isn't physical abuse, but as I'm talking about um, the allegations of that, that things that Geronda said and the witness Jane said about being slapped or punched or choked and that type of thing. But he does set the stage for the fact that these women were living under stringent rules. And as one of the staff, he was expected to follow through. We also, and, and I think it's important to note that even if you work for someone, you are responsible for your own actions as it relates to carrying out any type of activity, even if it is a, 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 even if it is a direct quote order, unquote, from your employer, that is illegal. You don't get a pass on putting a gun to somebody's head and pulling the trigger because someone else told you to. Maybe if you're a two-year-old, not if you're a grown man or woman. So he sets the stage for all of that. Next, yet another piece as it relates to what the prosecution, the groundwork, the steps in the ladder to Rico that the um, that uh, the prosecution is building, they bring on Demetrius Smith, former tour manager for R. Kelly, and he admits to being the actual individual, this mysterious individual that we have only heard about in lore, I suppose. He actually admits to being the individual that we've only heard about who went to the government official, in this case, the welfare office, to get one of the two forms of ID needed to get the marriage license as it relates to Aaliyah. And this is where the whole Aaliyah piece comes in because people are like, I mean, that happened in 1994, right or wrong, like how does that come into it? Well, again, it is all a part of this criminal inter criminal enterprise. And again, bribery of a government official shows that you are committing acts to what keep the ultimate scheme going, which is to provide your person, R. Kelly, Robert Kelly, to facilitate his sexual predilection. And in this case, it was not only to facilitate his uh, marriage and continued access to Aaliyah, but to potentially cover up the possibility of criminal charges because of the alleged sexual activity that was already occurring. Because as the story goes, Aaliyah may have may or may not have been pregnant or at least at some point there was the belief that she was pregnant which would have certainly revealed that sex had been taking place between a 27 year old R Kelly and a 15 at the time year old Aaliyah so a marriage 
would resolve that whole situation as it relates to, at least in their warped minds, as it relates to potential criminal charges, if and when it came out that the sex was taking place because a little R. Leah was growing in her belly. There was no child born to the best of the world's knowledge. The marriage was annulled. But again, none of that is really the meat and potatoes of why this is important. This is one of the 14 uh, predicate acts that the prosecution is putting out there. And I talked about this in my initial um, broadcast about this. This is one of those 14 acts that the prosecution is putting out there to underscore the acts of this enterprise to facilitate and or cover up crimes. And in this case, you have a crime being committed to cover up a crime and potentially facilitate even more crime as the sex would be continuing because now you're my wife. So that is where that came place. So that was the big issue that came out of that case. Uh, I'm sorry, out of his testimony. And then moving ahead to today, you have uh, yesterday and today, you have um, the Jane. Uh, and, and actually, Demetrius Smith was after Jane. But you have Jane, and she was on the stand for quite some time, pretty much all day yesterday and a good portion of today. Hi, Frankie D. She was on the stand all day yesterday and a good portion of today. And so she paints a pretty bleak picture. Again, this is one of the young women who was in the... Um, she was in the interview, so we know that she was at least one of those two. She talks about being with him for almost five years, starting when she was 17 until 22, and, and honestly until, what, barely two years ago. And she goes uh, deep into, again, establishing, as I refer to it, this uh, bizarre house of horrors that he had going on uh, both in, and she was with him with for a long time. So um, I believe that she is actually alleged to have been held in both places, uh, both when he would be in Atlanta as well as in Chicago. But the main place is um, the the home in uh, the home in or right outside of Chicago. And she definitely describes the rules. She describes the beatings. Um, the food deprivation, the uh, having to um, having your sex acts videotaped, having to even perform sex sexual acts or have sex with other individuals who were a part of his entourage or in his group. She all she even describes at one point him becoming angry with her and beating her with a size 12 Air Force One shoe, which stands out to her, probably not because it was an Air Force One, more so because it's a big size 12 sneaker going upside your head. 
And she, the things that she described were, were very disturbing. It definitely lent it itself towards, um, again, this whole notion of mind control uh, through deprivation, time spent, um, and beatings, etc. Now, again, for the prosecution, I'll keep saying it, however distasteful, the prosecution, I'm, I'm sorry, the defense, in however distasteful, in doing their job, and I've done it, I get it, in doing their job, had to point out some very important things to try to poke holes in the testimony. Of course, they're going to try and poke holes in the timeline, especially when we're talking about someone who was allegedly 17, because, well, that's pretty damn close to 18, which would then at least Yes, you've got all the other allegations, but at least we can get the stink of the underage thing off uh, off of him. And and quite frankly, I think sadly your average person, despite the the age difference between uh, her and Robert Kelly at the time, because he's fifty four now, so um, there's still whether she was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, or twenty, a pretty substantial age difference. And then you put in power, money, and all of that. But um, I don't think that many people are going to really find that there was much difference uh, between 17 and 18 when it comes to a person who, um, again, comes to the individual willingly and, like Geronda Pace, did at least initially say that she was 18. Ultimately, her true age was revealed. Um, the other piece with her uh, is that she did also say that she did not know that he had herpes, that he did not reveal that diagnosis, and that she later was yet another person who found out that she had general herpes. And I think that, um, just as a side note, when it comes to this herpes diagnosis, especially when we're talking about young people, and depending on their background and level of education, I, I don't think that we can mention enough, or that I can mention enough, that when it comes to this whole space of control over these young women that, or even young men, that this herpes piece is just as important as the deprivation acts and the strict rules because herpes is something that is not curable. So when someone gets a diagnosis like that and they are already under the control of someone who is telling them what to do, nobody's going to love you like I do, you're mine, you belong to me, I'm your daddy and whatever, even the herpes diagnosis can reinforce that because at that point, for all intents and purposes, especially as a young person, you view that as, well, you're spoiled now. 
Nobody else is going to ever want you. You have an incurable sexually transmitted disease. Now, I'm not saying that that is true, but again, putting yourself in the space of a young person who is dealing with everything else that is going on, the level of mental, emotional, physical abuse, and the power dynamic combined with a lack of knowledge about what life with a disease is really like versus what you're being told, especially since you haven't lived with it or have access to information to help you realize that this is something that you can live with. This is something that if you maintain certain steps, you'll be fine. Of course, inform your partners, but there's people who live with herpes every day. And certainly unlike some diseases, it's not like it's a death sentence. So it's just, you know, I'm not gonna say it's just an inconvenience. I mean, again, there's certain protocols, but I don't think that people have grasped enough that even being diagnosed with herpes while under this umbrella of everything else that is going on adds to this control and adds to this idea that you would operate like a brainwashed person because of what's going on. So that's so that was a, a, a strong piece of what she talked about. She talked about having herpes and again, reinforced a lot of what uh, Geronda Pace said about, um, although not there at the same time and not having anything to do with each other, but um, again, just that consistency over time and building the case for the fact that there was bad stuff going on and that there were, as, as the prosecution has to constantly remind the jury if they want to win this case, especially on the RICO side, that there were individuals besides R. Kelly himself that had to participate to make this bad stuff happen. Because as I said, as I already said, one of the tough pieces when you, in using this argument as it relates to a celebrity is that all of those jobs that those individuals around him have, including and, and, and them doing their jobs, like the prosecution says, to build his brand and to help make him for, more famous, that is the legitimate job of people who work in that industry. That is what they're supposed to do or they have no purpose. So what the prosecution is attempting to do is to say that they were doing this job to make him famous and keep him famous, which is what you have to do with someone who's famous but that that was not for the same reasons that 
50 gazillion other people have tried to do it since, you know, the beginning of people trying to be famous, which is to just have people know you and want you and spend money on your whatever product you're selling, all of which is a part of what you do. And yes, even so that pretty women would want to have sex with you, which is very much a part of the whole being famous thing as well. I mean, we know that it's, it's, I'm, I'm not saying anything out of school, but for him, it was deeper than that. And because of the type of thing that he wanted, that it wasn't just to have pretty girls want to be around you and to have sex with you, but a step further than that to take it into a darker place so that you could, for one of a better way of putting it, have your own bizarre sex cult of women and girls that there were things that they did that went beyond the norm because ultimately in order to have what he had, especially with the young girls, which would be something illegal, you needed to do illegal acts to get it and maintain it. I get it, but I also do this for a living. I'm not really sure if the public is going to buy it. And um, I'm going to be even more curious to see if not only will a jury buy it, but if they do, will it stand up on an inevitable appeal or at least keep him in jail long enough so that he could be charged and so that he can be tried on the cases that are specifically about sex, about this, the sex, which is what everybody thought this whole thing was about anyway, and then get convicted of those charges. And then if this whole thing goes away, he'll still be in jail anyway. It, it, this is an interesting case, folks, and uh, I'm glad you're hanging with me to continue to talk about it. Um, I'm sorry that I crammed so much into uh, one episode because, as I said last week, my goal is definitely to um, try to give it to you in bite-sized pieces, two to three two or three days of trial at a time so it's easier to understand but today yesterday was the first day of school for my little one and needless to say that the attorney me did not anticipate that the mommy me would have so much going on in order to make sure that uh that happened on time and in the right way so once again Thank you, thank you, thank you for hanging out with me. This episode, if you didn't hear it live, is going to be up on all platforms, uh, either late tonight, tonight is Tuesday, or sometime or by lunchtime tomorrow, which will be Wednesday the 25th. And as usual, I will keep following this trial for you because 
there's a lot of stuff, but because it's not televised, it's got to be pulled in from many different sources. And I'm more than happy to do this because, as you can tell, I love this stuff. Um, I want to give a shout out to some of my many sources, but my primary ones being the New York Times, The Guardian, The Chicago Tribune, Newser, USA Today, Reuters, and The Wall Street Journal. If you want to follow this case all of them have been doing a fantastic job. The Chicago Tribune, uh, two of their reporters are tweeting uh, fairly constant on this. Um, and it's fairly obvious, especially that uh, the New York Times, um, the New York Times and even USA Today probably have people on site there in one of the overflow rooms in the courthouse because their coverage has been fantastic. So if you want a little extra, those are definitely my recommendations. The Chicago Tribune is an obvious uh, place to go. Another one, The Guardian, fantastic. They have been doing really in-depth coverage practically every day. So if you want to go where I'm going to get, uh, to get some really... Um, to get some really meaty news, that's where to go. Otherwise, continue to follow me on Listen In on all uh, podcast platforms. If you have uh, Apple iTunes in particular, please go and listen on there. Give me five stars. Leave comments. I am on, of course, here on Podbean, Google, iTunes, Stitcher, <laughs> uh, Verbal, Amazon, Spotify. Uh, so you can pretty much... Find me everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Also, you can join in on the fun daily where we talk about lots of stuff. R. Kelly trial I'm discussing exclusively here with you, but um, over on the Fashion and Drama Diaries on Facebook, the link is here in the info box. You will also see the link to my Twitter and Instagram to follow me. Feel free to DM me if you have any tea or anything you want me to talk about on my other episodes, because there is a lot that we will be getting into this week. My sound engineer has now got me all wrapped up in this Ace Family saga, so I am doing a deep dive on that. I also will be doing a series uh, that, well, I'm sorry, I'm also going to be doing a series as it relates to, it. I keep saying a series, an episode regarding some of the recent things that have come out, particularly as it relates to uh, the revelation Lil Wayne made. There is a lawsuit against Nicki Minaj. Of course, there's the ever evolving, ever evolving sagas with the housewives and their various legal dramas, particularly Jen Shaw and Erica Girardi. And just all manner of craziness, not even necessarily legal. There's also just been a lot of just foolishness in the news that we will get to. By the way, did you all see the um, the clip of the guy cursing out his wife because she was being a Karen? That was really good. By the way, do not do the crate challenge. My God, that is the stupidest thing it is so stupid. And seriously, if you're doing something because Lil Boosie does it, then you need help anyway. I mean, really, the dude looks like the Junie doll from the Trilogy of Terror movies in, what was that, like the late 70s, early 80s? And I mean, and he probably has the same level of intelligence as the little 
the the little doll with the knife that's running around going, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so no. If that dude is offering you money to do something, you probably shouldn't be climbing on crates to nowhere. And quite frankly, I'd be interested to know how many of these folks climbing tra- uh, crates to nowhere are vaccinated, okay? Sounds stinky. I took that from Cardi B. So <laughs> um, as far as celebrities not washing, I can't do it. I, I don't even want to talk about it. Again, as Cardi B says, sounds stinky. We're also going to talk about some of the recent stuff that uh, happened with uh, Shikari Richardson as well. I'm over it, but people keep asking me to talk about it. I don't know why, because they're going to be mad anyway. Other than that, you can always let me know what's going on in your side of town or in your part of the country by emailing me. Or if you have a specific question or issue that you'd like me to talk about, look into a story that's particularly hot, feel free to DM me or to just email me directly. And you have that email address in the description box as well. Otherwise, as always, if you're thinking about it, chances are I'm thinking about it and I want to talk about it with you. So let's be honest together. Good night.